गुरुर्ब्रह्मा गुरुर्विष्णुर्गुरुदेव महेश्वरा गुरु शक्षात पारा ब्रह्मा तस्मै श्री गुरवे नमः I bow to God and Guru in all of you. Today, I would like to read a passage from my Guru's early life in America. You know, it was no small thing for a saint to come to America and have to brave all the materialism in that country and yet still maintain the high purity and great power of Vedanta and yoga philosophy and to remain always centered in himself. He had to deal with a lot of different kinds of people. I'd like to read you a story of those early years. The master was reminiscing with me about his early years in America. Ralph, he said, was a man who chauffeured me on my first cross-country lecture tour. There was another driver with us also, Arthur Cometer, who was a good and sincere devotee. Then there's a parenthetical statement here. Mr. Cometer visited us in Mount Washington shortly before the end of Master's life. I had an opportunity to meet him there. Ralph, on the other hand, continued the Master, was arrogant and had a skeptical nature. When he drove on country roads, he would go out of his way to run over rabbits, killing them. He refused to listen when I told him to stop doing so. I then warned him, you'll draw a severe karmic lesson for the heartless slaughter you are committing. Oh, yeah, prophet, he sneered. Leave off, I'm having a good time. You'll see, I repeated very seriously, your action is an offense against karmic law. One day, all of a sudden, I ordered him to stop. So firm was my tone of voice that he obeyed. The car had barely come to a halt when the wheel rolled off. It had been working itself loose, you see. If we hadn't stopped just at that moment, we would have had a serious accident. After this experience, Ralph stopped his sadistic, quote, entertainment. Because of Ralph's skepticism, I played up to it, hoping to draw this delusion out of him. Before giving a lecture, for example, I would primp, combing my hair with exaggerated care and pretending in other ways to be inordinately vain. Whoever comes to me finds me a mirror to whatever is in his heart. Thus I try to help him to see qualities in himself that he needs to overcome. In Ralph's case, I wanted to bring out his vanity so that he could see it clearly and work to overcome it. From my understanding, that's me, the writer, of this account, the end of Ralph's story may have to await telling at a future date, for so far as I know he played no future, no further role in the Master's life. I did, however, see the Master sometimes play up to people's delusions, exaggerating them in order to bring them to a head and thereby free those people of their errors. It was really fascinating living with this great master. In some cases, the healing process took a very long time. I remember him telling one disciple, I lost sight of you for a few incarnations. He then added a deeply inspiring promise, but I will never lose sight of you again.
just as a side line, sometimes that that disciple would ask him again, now you remember, you promised. And the guru would say, yes, I will, I will never lose sight of you again. What a wonderful thing it is to know that you are firmly in the grip of the guru. Someone who can lift you up above this, this turmoil of life. Reflecting also on the unusual promptness with which Ralph attracted his karmic retribution, because after all, it wouldn't be normally that uh, just by running over a few rabbits, the wheel will fall off of your car, but sooner or later something will happen. So that on the unusual promptness with which Ralph attracted his karmic retribution, I realized that the Master had simply allowed the karmic law to operate without what he called in autobiography and referring to Sailanga Swami, the, quote, thwarting cross-currents of ego. It is against karmic law to take life in any form with deliberate intent and without cause, especially for mere pleasure. People who engage in what they like to call the sport of hunting would do well to reflect on this truth. How innumerable indeed are the lessons implicit in the least words and actions of a great master. There are many lessons in this particular saying, aren't there? One is this obvious one, that as we treat the world, so are we going to get treated. And even if you treat animals and any creatures that way, now you have to use common sense. I mean, if you, you can't say, well, I'll never drive again, because when I drive, I uh, kill beetles on the windshield, and that's bad karma. You can't help that. This world is inconveniently arranged, as my guru's guru, Swami Sudhakteshwar Giri, used to say. It's inconveniently arranged to be absolute in your application of the law. So when Patanjali said that we must practice ahimsa, nonviolence, what he was saying is you must practice not wanting to harm other people. You don't want ill to those beetles, but you can't help existing. You can't walk on the street and not step on some little ant and kill it. This is just the nature of the world. And death really, after all, doesn't even... It's not, it's not real. Nothing really dies. As it says in the Bhagavad Gita, no one dies, no one is born, it's all just eternal. And so, what you need to do is watch your intentions. Ralph, in this story, was gleefully running down those poor rabbits. This is certainly sinful. They have as much right to live as you and I. If, however, there is a choice between human life and an animal life, then human life is more precious. And so the sin is greater to endanger the human life than the animal. In other words, it's correct to kill mosquitoes deliberately, but you don't have to do it with animosity. I asked my guru this question. We'll probably come upon this saying later on um, in this, this book. But I said, sir, but what about animals that don't seem to cause any harm, like flies? I said, is it wrong to kill flies? He said, no. Because in those cultures where they allow such insects to proliferate, human life is cut short. There's much more disease spread 
human life is more important. So we need to exercise a certain amount of, of common sense. The important thing is your own inner, your will. There must be no thwarting cross-currents of desire. Whatever happens to you, accept it peacefully, calmly, but don't take it into yourself. Whatever you do, don't let it be with will, that is to say with desire. <coughs> do what is right in your life. Understand that the teaching of the Gita is literally true and not just figuratively true. The battle of Kurukshetra was really a, an allegory of the battle between the good and evil in each human being. But does that mean that it's wrong always to go to war? No. Krishna meant it on every level. It would not have been a scripture had he only put it as an allegory and not meant the physical to be true too. He was saying, however, that in a righteous war, for example, if a country attacks you, you have to defend your country. Don't go out aggressively to attack other countries. Don't try to impose your values on other countries. Don't try, but supposing a murderer were to come to your village and were to go on a rampage and shoot everybody. Now, if you could talk him out of it, fine, but if not, what's he going to do? He's going to shoot you and then go on and shoot your family? Mahatma Gandhi wasn't practical in that one respect. He said, I'd let him shoot me first. <laughs> well, he could shoot you and then go on and shoot everybody else, so what would he have gained? In other words, we do have to see that uh, there are, in this relative world, relative realities. It's our intention that counts. The wonderful victory that India had against England in winning her freedom nonviolently was above all her mastery of spirit, her will to wish good to England. But you know, an interesting thing that my guru said also, and I don't know, I'm talking to millions of people, there are going to be people disagreeing with me, well, okay. But I'm here to teach what my guru taught, and uh, he was a man of truth. He said that if Russia or China were to invade India, India should defend itself. He said that if I, because he, sometimes there was one time out in the, de in the jungle outside Ranchi, and he came upon a tiger, and he looked at that tiger with love, and the tiger melted. He just sort of rolled over and let him pet him, and then he sort of yawned and walked away. But he said if the average person were to do that, he'd end up practicing his nonviolence in the tiger's stomach. You have to deal with the realities as they are. And so the English at least were gentlemen. They didn't always act it, but they basically were. Whereas a philosophy that is determined to destroy, that has already killed countless millions of its own people because they disagreed, you can't practice the same kind of nonviolence on that. So you must be realistic, but do try always to maintain what you have. You have in your culture 
this realization that it's all a play of God's. God is everywhere. We must learn to worship him, even in our enemies. We can love our enemies, even if we have to fight them. If you don't have to kill them, all the better. But you have to do what you have to do to allow right to win. This is an unfortunate reality in this world of relativity. And so, we can't all just be sitting chanting Om in the Himalayas. We've got to be realistic. And yoga says, be realistic. Bring these teachings down to where you are. Learn how to deal with people. Like that story that I think it was Ramakrishna who used to tell, my guru loved it also, of this snake who was, um, uh, it was a cobra, and it was being persecuted by the children, and everybody was afraid of it. And uh, this saint taught it nonviolence. And so after a while, the saint came back, and he found this cobra near death. The cobra was, uh, had been beaten up by the children once they found out that the cobra was no longer venomous, would no longer bite them. And the saint said, well, you little fool, I told you not to bite, but I didn't tell you not to hiss. We have to know how to be strong. We have to know that sometimes we have to hiss. Yes, in a war, sometimes it means killing, but it doesn't mean not wishing well, because finally, even death is just just a dream. It doesn't exist. God is the only constantly enduring reality. You cannot find perfection except in him. But the more you have of him, the more you will find as all real masters are. Yogananda one time was approached by a man. It was during the Depression in America in the 1930s. And he gave a public talk in which he talked against the rich people taking advantage of the poor and causing them to plunge into greater poverty. And he said there, God does not like that. Well, people told him, don't go home alone tonight. He said, I'm not afraid. God is with me. And he came into a little darkened alley. I think it was outside Penn Station in New York. Suddenly he felt somebody put a gun in his back. And he said, why did you talk that way about those people? And Yogananda turned and he said, they're all equally God's children. And God is not pleased when his rich children take advantage of his poor children. And then he looked at that man and he said, why do you live the way you do? You're not happy like that. I demand that Satan come out of you. And he looked at him with so much power, the man began to tremble. He dropped his pistol. He said, what have you done to me? I was sent to shoot you. He said, I, I, I can't go back to that way of life any longer. He ran away. But that's the kind of a power that a master has. But do you have that power? You have to deal with truth as you are right now. There are ideals and there's the effort to reach up to those ideals. The more you can give that kind of love that will change people, the more you will find that you don't have to use anything but love. Love is the greatest power in the universe, but it's not a sentiment. It's not a sweet smile. It's something in your heart. I remember that power standing in his presence and feeling it just overwhelming me. I, I was rooted to the spot. It was so just, it overcame me. 
That's the power of God. That's the power we reach up to. That's the power we must aspire to. Love, perfect love. Namaskar. Long I've called you, my Lord. Long I've called you. Many years I have longed for your sight. Bid the darkness with tears of devotion. Offered candles in prayer to your light. How much longer? Must I cry your name? I am yours, ever yours. Will you come? Long I've called you, my Lord. Long I've called you. Many Must I cry?